Alex here for the Weird Era podcast, and today I'm joined by PJ Vernon to discuss his new novel, Bathhouse. PJ Vernon was born in South Carolina. Called a rising star thriller writer by Library Journal, Vernon's debut, When You Find Me, was both an Audible Plus number one listen and Associated Press top 10 US audiobooks. He currently lives in Calgary with his husband and two wily dogs. Bathhouse tells the story of Oliver Park, a recovering addict, and his loving, wealthy partner Nathan, a surgeon based in Washington, D.C. When Oliver decides behind Nathan's back to go to house the local bathhouse, a line is crossed and the evening takes a horrific turn that results in Oliver's near murder and puts these characters on a dangerous path of deceit and betrayal that perhaps neither will survive. A highly readable and gripping thriller of a novel, you'll be sure to see Bathhouse in many hands this summer. Hi, PJ. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so just a few things before we get into it. Uh, for our listeners, this episode of the podcast deals with some heavy subject matter. We're going to talk uh, about addiction at times, suicidal thoughts, manipulative and abusive relationships. And to you, PJ, I also want to say uh, we try to make our episodes as spoiler free as possible. So for all intents and purposes, I'd like to discuss the book and the characters' relationships as they stand before the big ending reveals. Okay? Absolutely. So... I do want to start with a hard hitter, and I want to ask this from an extremely objective place. Um, like I said at the top of the episode, you'll be sure to see Bathhouse in many hands this summer, and I think it'll likely be picked up by a lot of the readers who loved the off-the-rail thrillers like Gone Girl, Girl on a Window, Girl on a Train. Uh, so Bathhouse, however, might very well be an introduction to Grinder, the conversation of non-monogamy and the bathhouse scene in general for these readers. I think my question, and again, I'm trying to be as objective as possible because I really love Bathhouse. I think it's so readable and fun and really sinks its teeth deep, um, is in a way these are pretty sinister gay men at times with duplicitous morals and extremely questionable motives. Were you ever concerned about the kinds of ideas Bathhouse may present to an audience whose first intro to gay culture comes from this book? That is a uh, fabulous question. And absolutely, you know, that's always top of mind um, for me. I think, you know, big from the, a big picture standpoint, I think about um, the sorts of like portrayals that I've seen of queer characters, whether it's, you know, fil- you know, ambiguously um, queer, you know, Disney villains or um, characters in classics like uh, Dune, very problematic portrayals um, of, of my community and how that makes me feel when I revisit those uh, narratives uh, at this point in my life. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think about, you know, when I was in high school and of course I had you know, Will Truman and Jack McFarlane from Will and Grace. And, and that representation was so important uh, to me, um, mm-hmm. not the least of, for not the least of uh, reasons why uh, it helped me identify, like suss out safety and identify potential allies, right? Like if I wasn't out and someone, you know, being from South Carolina, that was like country as hell. And a friend was like laughing their ass off at some zinger from Jack about bottoming. It advertised to me that if this person were, I mean, genuine laughter, right? Um, This person would uh, not hurt me. 
or this person mm-hmm. might actually um, be an ally or supportive when I come out. So, so that's all incredibly important. But I also think of another character around the same time. And it was, um, I don't know if you ever saw Desperate Housewives back in the day. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the character of Andrew um, Vandekamp. The son. Yes. Bree's the son, s- right? Yes. The, uh, yeah. the, the son of like the notoriously perfect Brie who, um, <laughs> you know, he, uh, his bed, he was my age. Um, his mm-hmm. bedroom looked like mine. Will Truman's apartment did not. Will Truman made me feel pretty messy, I think, a lot of the times. Um, and then here was this uh, this gay on TV, uh, you know, living a life that that was closer to mine, but also um, was an absolute like cruel intention style monster. Um, and it was really hard for me to feel messy when the gay on TV was like you know, exacting revenge um, on his mom by like sleeping with her sex addict boyfriend. Uh, And there was something so like thrilling, obviously, but liberating about um, that character that I couldn't quite Mm. put my finger on it at first. And as I think about it later, I think, you know, stories, I think humans evolved to tell stories in part as like cautionary tales, right? Like, um, uh, it's why we gossip. It's why we rubberneck car mm. accidents and those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, to see, to be able to have um, access to pop culture where you know queers and in the case of Bathhouse, these gay cis men are behaving very very um, badly at times. Uh, man, I would have loved to have seen that as a kid. You know, before I ever got into a, a shitty relationship, to to have seen that sort of thing play out um, in pop culture. And it would have stuck with me. So from that side of things, uh, it's liberating from the uh, perspective of sort of, however you want to frame it, mainstream audiences accessing this for the first time. You know, obviously I was conscious of of that um, writing the book, you know, in ways that would be accessible, explaining Grindr, explaining some of, you know, the lexicon and the verbiage, but at the same time, not boring, you know, folks, readers like me, if I, if I picked it up, um, you know, it's, I I think I'm, I don't want to be, you know, relegated to a diversity table or, or a diversity shelf. I, I think, um, you know, people, uh, like me, um, deserve the same sort of primetime, uh, spotlight in these toxic plots as they do anywhere else. Uh, and I, I would hope that a lot of, I hope the sympathy that I, you know, want readers to cultivate uh, for characters like Oliver uh, builds itself up in in readers maybe accessing this sort of environment for the first time, and that they mm-hmm. uh, leave the book with with more empathy rather than sort of um, uh, oh, this must be you know what all uh, gay men are like. Um, if that makes any sense, I feel like I'm totally rambling. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that makes perfect sense. I think, thank you for that answer also. I think that's a great answer. Um, and I, and just, I guess, out of my own curiosity, because you post a lot of, like, the early reviews that have been coming out. Do you notice a lot of, you know, I guess I would say, like, straight cis women coming back and and expressing that? Like, this was their first introduction to any of this i definitely uh definitely come across it so one of my favorite mm. examples um a bookstagrammer they posted they wound up leaving a fabulous review but they posted a story question in the middle of their read like who knew what a bathhouse was raise your hand <laughs> and i saw it and i was just like 
I did <laughs> click vote <laughs> or, or whatever. Um, but uh, so I, I do find that I find um, to my relief, uh, it being reviewed and treated by, um, you know, these segments of the population the same way that they would treat any of its shelf mates, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, what I set out to do. And certainly, mm-hmm. you know, I give up some things uh, when I do that. Um, but it was, it was very important to me, um, you know, that the most likely readers, you know, they, they want a good story and, yeah. you know, I, I want to give it, give it to them. And uh, yeah, so it's been an overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive. Um, there's certainly yeah. been a comment or two every now and again with, you know, Oh, there's no gay role models, you know, in this book. <laughs> and oh I'm just God. like, and I'm just like, Absolutely, there is not. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point, and I think it comes across in it. Uh, yeah, I mean, but Oliver is still, I think, you know, at least an extremely sympathetic character. Um, let's get into a question about Oliver. Uh, his journey from addiction to recovery is a difficult one, like most of them are. Um, although Nathan basically acts like an adoptive father or, or a daddy, to him and becomes the sole caretaker and provider during this recovery process. You really do articulate uh, Oliver's struggle candidly and honestly. His life has been rough. His addiction is never very far from the surface and it manifests itself in these really destructive ways at times. Um, on the other hand, Nathan has been raised with luxury and privilege and I would argue has a real addiction to the power he exerts, uh, which we will also touch on later. Uh, But I want to talk about the power dynamics of this relationship through the lens of Oliver's addiction. Does Nathan actually want to help Oliver stay sober for Oliver's sake? Or does he care more about being the agent of Oliver's sobriety? Yeah, my gut is absolutely um, the latter. Um, Their relationship is... um, you know, extraordinarily uh, codependent. Um, I think, uh, you know, and this is this is not a spoiler because, you know, as we say, Oliver's on the road to recovery, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the book. Um, but I feel like if, if he had never met Nathan, uh, his partner at a very vulnerable time in his life, which uh, for any uh, listeners would be, you know, when he's just starting um, that path, if he hadn't had met Nathan, um, who presented uh, from Oliver's point of view, such a, such an easy solution, um, mm-hmm. not saying it's easy, but, but, you know, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. We'll, ge- we'll move geographically somewhere else. It'll be a totally yeah. different thing. Yeah. I've got you. And that sets up this dynamic where Oliver is relying on another person um, uh, for himself. And I wonder if that had never happened, um, you know, where Oliver might be differently. And if that was, if that was stifling um, in the long term, uh, I feel like, you know, Oliver doesn't quite know who he is. Um, as many of us are always constantly finding out. And when you don't know who you are, it makes you vulnerable for um, folks that might have savior syndromes or might have, um, might not be the best person to create a supportive environment for you to stay healthy uh, because they're in it for themselves, whether it's to feel good about helping someone else and truly believing that they're, uh, you know, benefiting um, someone that they deeply and genuinely care about. um, Or, you know, if it's, you know, even more um, malicious or malignant in the sense that, you know, what we were just talking about, you know, comparatively looking like a mess next to someone else, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. If, so if that answers the question. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. And again, like we'll we'll get into it a little further in the podcast. Um, just this sense of how much does how much does Nathan actually care about Oliver's sobriety at the end of the day, and how much does he care about him taking the credit for it in a way? I guess I would say. Yeah, I would say definitely the credit uh, is important to him for sure. I think he mm. honestly, I think he would honestly answer, um, you know, collaterally, I satisfy this need that I have and Oliver stays healthy. Um, so I can choose to present uh, that dynamic as I'm keeping Oliver healthy as opposed to that being the primary goal. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, you know what, in this case, let's just jump right keep going with Nathan um, because I really do want to talk about uh, the thumb Uh, in one of bathhouse's early chapters, Nathan, who's a surgeon is presenting a lecture where he talks about a time he had to make the call to preserve a thumb for reattachment on a patient or secure this patient's breathing and therefore life. Uh, Nathan proceeds to crush the thumb under his foot as the nurses seem to be too focused on preserving it. Uh, I also want to highlight a moment that happens later in the book where Oliver states when Nathan returns home, he'll be quote, haggard from playing God. Does Nathan have a God complex? And how far do you think he's willing to engage in that side of himself early in the novel, let's say? Right. Um, 100%. I, uh, he certainly does have a God complex in, in a mm. past life. Um, I was an immunologist. I worked um, at the Defense Department in combat casualty care. I also okay. uh, worked in um, anti-tumor uh, vaccines at the University of Pittsburgh. So surrounded by, um, and in many instances, especially early on in my career as a mentee um, and a student, um, very big egos, uh, particularly mm. in, you know, surgical oncology or, or trauma surgery, those sorts of things. I don't now I've got plenty of amazing friends uh, who, are, <laughs> who, are, who are surgeons and uh, actually a very good friend of mine, Honorat Obama, uh, read Bathhouse for me to sort of like get details uh, mm-hmm. right um, that I had missed. Um, but undeniably, I was encountering over and over again, uh, usually exclusively, you know, white men, um, uh, cis men who had these sorts of complexes because of just the stakes that they mm. uh, dealt with every day. And, um, you know, just like it takes a certain kind of personality to be a head of state, I think it takes a certain personality to be willing to want to fix uh, a human mm. being's body in some way. Um, and, you know, so that utilitarian outlook becomes necessary because in the example that you um, cite, it is very, you know, shocking to crush an amputated thumb that's viable um, while its owner's crashing, you know, on a, in the trauma bay. Um, but if I had been in that situation, I, w- I would have not made that call. I would have been like, let's, mm. let's try to save everything, save the thumb. Let's try to get this guy closed up and fine. Um, and, you know, then losing everything. So I think it's absolutely, uh, it's a need of a need to feel important and to feel valued mm. because I, I doubt Nathan received that um, in his life uh, in sort of a nurturing, healthy way. How conscious do you think he is of his own God complex? And I guess I can ask this also um, through your experience with these types of people that you've encountered in your life. How self-aware are they at any given moment? 
I, you know, I definitely don't want to try to speak on behalf of people's brains that I can never be, um, be inside. But, um, you know, I wonder sometimes if a sociopath knows that they're a sociopath. Um, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas like someone like me, who's just an anxious person, you know, I, at the end of or halfway through this whole pandemic thing, when I'm starting to feel numb and getting like, you know, uh, having trouble cultivating the same kind of feelings that I have about had about things in the past. I'm like, am I a sociopath right now? If I lost all <laughs> of my, you know, ability to feel I should be more sad or more happy or what, ha- like, you know, of course, I'm not a sociopath, but I, I don't think sociopaths maybe think that um, mm-hmm. at, at any given point. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, uh, that's sort of an extreme example. Definitely not saying Nathan's a sociopath either. <laughs> um, but, you know, behaviorally, uh, in my experiences, I've had situations where I don't think self being self-aware of that um, ever surfaces in light of the thrill, in light of the risk-taking behavior, mm. um, in light of the payoff from that. Um, stories where, you know, uh, an individual, um, you know, had their pilot license, small aircraft license, and, you know, weren't allowed to um, fly above the cloud layer. And mm. because a storm setting in, the cloud layer keeps shrinking and shrinking, and they keep going down, like they pass a steeple. And that's when they're like, oh. I can't oh. keep flying, huh. uh, you know, that, and so it's just this, I can do anything, uh, sort of attitude, regardless of, of the risk that I've encountered. And, um, I don't know if self-awareness really has space in there to, to exist always, maybe after the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, so indulge me for a moment. Is there a healthy aspect to Nathan and Oliver's relationship? So it's uh, it, so in the confines of that kind of relationship, certainly it's about partnering with the right person for, mm-hmm. for Oliver and Nathan, but also it's about timing. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe in an alternate timeline, if Oliver and Nathan had perhaps uh, encountered one another um, at a different time uh, in their lives, then, you know, it may have provided an opportunity for some of those things uh, to, to uh, come up. I think um, in many ways, Nathan and Oliver um, complement each other uh, like lots of people do in relationships. I'm really, really shitty about uh, getting our taxes in on time um, and, and those sorts of things. My husband, Barry, is not. I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. He has OCD. So it's it's mm-hmm. together we're like one functioning adult. And I think um, outside of all the high stake stuff that's happening um, in the book, they might behave like one functioning adult. And there is those, so there's that positive aspect about it. Um, But again, the foundation's predicated on bad timing um, and perhaps personality types that are not, you know, that are a little too uh, uh, not able to look into the other person selflessly. Um, And so, you know, the second you have any stressor, it all comes apart. Um, So if everything's totally fine and everything's great in the neighborhood and jobs are great and people are great and in love, then then Oliver and Nathan probably complement each other very, very well. Um, That's just not life. There's so much conversation kind of around what is owed to Nathan. Um, Oliver talks about it 
quite, quite often. I mean, the whole kind of premise of why everything's happening and why he's lying so much is because he owes Nathan. He owes Nathan. What is owed to Oliver? I think what was owed to Oliver um, was the space uh, to, you know, discover himself to to fix what was going on um in his life and his sort of challenges that he's that he's running into and i think part of that is he is uh suffering from cognitive distortions um like we all do where he has reframed that as in you know punishing himself i am bad i have done bad things um you know i owe nathan who was so gracious to let me in his perfect life um to support me um undying loyalty for that um but what what was owed to Oliver is someone who was older, someone who should have known better because of their training and their lived experiences um, that, you know, they deserved that shot, uh, you know, without um, feeding into, you know, an unhealthy relationship dynamic that, um, you know, they both find themselves in. My next question is, would just be like a twist on that too. And what does Nathan think is owed to Oliver? I think Nathan um, <laughs> thinks the uh, life of health and longevity and, um, you know, not having to worry about, you know, what kind of foods in the fridge um, or, you know, what, what your parent who might not be the best person in the world is up to or, or, or mm. uh, causing um, in, in your life from a problematic standpoint. And I think uh, Nathan probably from page one would say mission accomplished. I, I've given Oliver what's owed to him. Um, and so, you know, what he does with that is it can be anything from gratitude and collaboration um, to uh, being ungrateful and taking it. I think taking advantage, Nathan probably feels taken advantage of um, in the way that I, I would say he takes advantage of Oliver. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the process of writing as Oliver was like? Um because I think there's such a difficult vulnerability to his character. And one line in particular stands out to me that asks a big, important and telling question uh, that I was also constantly thinking it comes from Detective Henning. And is it and it is what scares you so shitless that the lies are worth it. So, again, just tell me about what it was like getting into Oliver's mindset and writing as that character. It was it was a little like a extended trip down memory lane but with funhouse mirrors lining it and amping up stakes and sort of you know you know i if i made some horrible mistake you know um you know doing my like walk of shame in the morning you know walking by my friend's house they're on the porch having coffee and they're like oh well there's you know pj come on up and get you know get a grab a cup of coffee and tell us you know, where the hell you've been, uh, you know, all night long or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, of course, there's nothing that would have approached anything that happens on the page, but, you know, it's called a walk of shame because you feel ashamed, you know, and you feel like, oh, that probably wasn't the best decision. I don't know what I was thinking, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and so because I'm an anxious person um, anyways, who sort of feels, uh, you know, there's, it's either zero or 100, like everything's the worst thing ever or the best thing ever. Mm. Um, you know, I felt like I had done like the worst 
thing ever. Um, and so being able to create a story where the actual circumstances matched that reaction <laughs> was a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, liberating, you know, or if, you know, draw on little experiences that you've had in life, you know, where someone's, mm-hmm. you know, you've been on a date and someone's done something that's like unsettled you a little bit and you're like, you know, your hackles rise and you're very upset about it. Um, and so it's nice to then like in fiction later, uh, tap into that. Um, but yeah. then the, again, make it so that the reaction was like super warranted and there was no question, <laughs> you know, that you should have been <laughs> upset about it. <laughs> so it was fun <laughs> in that way. Probably would not have been fun if I was writing it, uh, you know, contemporaneously with, <laughs> with that sort of, you know, Fair. single, you know, rural gay kid in the city for the first time outlook. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I guess one other question that I do want to have about Nathan and Oliver's relationship is, I mean, the whole catalyst of the story is Oliver using these apps, kind of browsing around, seeing what's happening, and then finally taking the step into house. Um why can't Oliver and Nathan have a constructive conversation about non-monogamy? Yeah, that, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question because that was also at the forefront of my mind um, mm-hmm. when I was sort of plotting this story and deciding what were the kinds of, um, you know, what kind of emotional depth and um, like interior character development would, would un- unfold. Um, I would argue uh in this specific relationship, knowing these characters, um, you know, there might not, Nathan probably hasn't created space for a conversation like that, that mm. would, would go anywhere beyond, you know, you're just looking for a, a green light um, to cheat. That's something I hear a lot um, from folks in these relationships. And then, you know, three years in, you know, it's, I oh my my boyfriend wanted to cheat and so he asked for an open relationship. I hear it constantly. Um, instead of doing exactly what you said, which is <laughs> re- recognizing you know biology and how you know um, mm-hmm. uh, we're made and what drives us and um, what's just as important as food, water, shelter, you know, sex and and um, that emotional intimacy, um, and you know. And why the hell can we not have those conversations, um, you know, right off the bat and talk and talk about them? Um, I think, you know, I experienced a very uh, strong urge, particularly in the States, you know, when we were just before we had gotten marriage um, Mm -hmm. to have something to be able to file those taxes with someone else, to be able to have a relationship that looked like my parents' relationship or anyone mm-hmm. else that may have, you know, uh, derided what, what my relationship would look like, where I'm going to be, you know, a promiscuous gay like the rest of them. You can't have that sort of uh, monogamy. And, and so that drove me for, for quite some time. And it drove me into relationships, you know, that, that looked like that. Um, and, and like what I traded for, uh, for that, uh, to mm. have that was taking on all that same sort of like patriarchal baggage and, you know, all the, the historical stuff that, um, you know, monogamous, like the marriage institution uh, comes with, um, which was always interesting to me because it's, you know, why do I, 
you didn't let me participate in all these other parts of society. Why do I have to participate in this specific one too? And, yeah. and that's a question everyone can answer for themselves, but it, you can only answer it if you have that conversation. Um, yeah. If they had had that conversation, the book probably would have been over very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think it's just, you know, obviously that I think the book would be over very, very quickly if they were able to have this kind of conversation. Um do you think it has to do with the age gap as well? Is Nathan more kind of, is this, is this idea more foreign to him than it would be to, for Oliver? Just, and I mean, I, you know, I know he comes from kind of a rural place in Indiana. Um, so I'm coming from it from a completely different perspective as like a gay man growing up in Montreal, right? Um, these conversations happen. These conversations are happening. Um, so yeah, is there kind of a divide there or a, you know, I don't want to say cognitive dissonance with Nathan, but some kind of just a, yeah, just it's a foreign aspect to him. Yeah. I think Nathan's life is very, um, institutionalized or I don't know if that's the right, Mm. uh, frame but it's very formal it's very there are boundaries there are pathways that you take um you don't take risks to go to medical school like you take it's a lot of hard work but if you complete it here's your ticket to ride um you know he's got his parents and you know they're very active in their community and um and all sorts of things so there's always this like this is the way things are um Mm. and you know he's never experienced um you know, from, from any of that supportive environment, negative reactions. Um, and so I, you know, I think he would look disdainfully at mm. a, um, a, you know, whether it's a, a polyamorous uh, couple or, you know, maybe it's not open, but it's kind of open a little bit, you know, on occasion. Or I think he would look disdainfully and, and he would say something like, um, well, there's another another promiscuous gay couple that you know either yeah. wants to ch- and be very der- der- derisive to, towards those folks, not recognizing where that comes from internally and why he mm. thinks those things. Um, whereas you have Oliver, who you know was subjected to a lot of emotional abuse, physical abuse, a not supportive environment or an environment that was supportive in different and unreliable ways. Um, mm. And so the flip side of that is he had a vacuum to fill when it came to figuring out um, who he was, uh, his sexuality, his, romantically, um, what his thoughts were, because no one gave a shit about him. Um, yeah. Whereas Nathan had a lot of people with a lot of power constantly giving lots of shits about him. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it resulted in, uh, you know, I think all, I think if Oliver was the older one and Oliver's boyfriend was, you know, three years in, like, let's have an open relationship. Oliver might be like, well, let's talk about why, you know, why you asked that. Mm-hmm. Let's think about it. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely that disconnect for Nathan. So a personal question now. Um, how do you feel about the apps? I mean, I think obviously the usage of the apps, specifically Meat Locker, which is a hilarious name, um, in this text is meant to be insidious. But outside of this text, uh, what are your personal thoughts on this aspect of gay culture? That's fairly n- new. Absolutely. I think they're so important. And, um, you know, circling back to your earlier question about what you're concerned um, about portrayal wise, I think my one of my biggest concerns um, was, you know, using these sorts of important things, these important vehicles 
um, as you know, opportunities for, for crime and crime fiction. Um, and certainly we've seen examples of that happening and, you know, uh, and those gay apps can be uh, misused by, by governments and all sorts of um, uh, malicious mm-hmm. actors to out people for very, very horrific reasons. Um, but they're so imp- they were so important for me uh, because I, you know, I, I was afraid and I'm still afraid. You know, I, I think eight times over before showing public affection with my husband because of a, just some sort of conditioned knee jerk response that I have, regardless of what I hold in my head. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done um, without the ability to quickly connect with um, other, you know, uh, gay men, um, but whether it turned into friendship or exclusively friendship, or even just to experience all of those things, those trial and error, those epic mistakes you were talking about that other folks get to do. I don't know when they're in high school, um, mm-hmm. I was closeted in a Christian high school. I didn't get to do that then. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think th- those are incredibly important. And I think the other aspect of that, the, the bathhouse aspect, you know, that's to me, you know, it exists because society made no room in any other way, um, uh, for, for folks to be who they were, you know, and, and, and either satisfy very, very important fundamental human, uh, appetites, but also develop connections and community and those, those sorts of things. And so I have a lot of, um, uh, love for those sorts of establishments. Um, and, you know, I do, there's a piece of me that, that is, you know, a little sad um, that, you know, to, to, to use those as a vehicle in, in crime fiction, but at the same time, all the other thrillers that I read, all the other suspense novels, they all get to use whatever they want, um, you know, and, and there's, there's no denying that we're vulnerable. We, we do put ourselves in vulnerable uh, situations on those apps, but we have trust in that the other person is like me and the other person is also going to be vulnerable. And so I joke about, you know, leaving the apartment at 1am, you know, I hope this person doesn't kill me. Like, oh, well, we'll find out. I'm going to go to their apartment for the first time. (laughs) Uh, um, And, uh, but on the other hand, that person's like me too, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and they also um, are putting themselves in a vulnerable situation. And they've also got a lot of the experiences that I've had. Um, And so, you know, there's an opportunity for folks to take advantage of anything, um, and I don't know why can't, you know, if, if Tinder gets to be in a thriller, you know, Grindr gets to be in a thriller too, is my, my take. And so I guess, I mean, we're pretty much at the, at the end of, at the end of our interview. Um, like one of my questions early on, and we kind of answered it and addressed it in that, in the first big questions was have we reached a point where these stories and characters can exist without perpetuating stereotypes or perhaps without a common reader thinking this is reflective of every gay man's experience? And you kind of knocked it out. So I want to amend my question to ask more. Now that I think we can have this space um, to be sharing and engaging and writing um, texts like this that are just kind of off the rails, it, crazy people doing crazy things, bad people doing bad things. What do you think the future of this of this writing looks like in the gay community? I think it it hopefully looks like um, like the community. I think it it looks it's representative of um, you know the authors that that tell these stories and and the only expectation um, is that they be good. 
Um, you know, there certainly there's plenty of trauma in Bathhouse, but it's not the story is not it's not a, tr a trauma book. It's not a trauma memoir. It's not an ex exploration into all of the horrible you know things. And and the author myself is mining their own life extractively for all of the. Uh, you know, ways I've been gutted in the past, you know, by, <laughs> uh, which certainly exist. Um, but isn't it great to not have to, to do that and to have space on the shelf for, um, for, for, you know, a hard boiled detective or uh, like bathhouse, you know, a domestic thriller, or I think of like um, uh, these violent delights by um, Micah Nemerever that came out last year about, you know, those two young college guys that are in this eruptive violent, uh, it very head over heels in love relationship in like 1970s Pittsburgh. Um, and, and they're just, it, it's an incredible story because it's, it's nothing to do with um, examining, you know, uh, their pasts and their traumas and their uh, it's about two, two people in vicious, violent love with one another. Um, and those stories exist uh, uh, all over the place from all kinds of communities. And so I'm, I'm excited and so heartened that, that it's happening um, uh, particularly in, in my genre in adult fiction, YA has been blazing ahead. Uh, <laughs> in that uh in that regard um thank god right what yeah, younger yeah, me yeah, would yeah. not have would not have uh what given to have those kinds of stories and i think that especially in ya these days like the representation is just off the charts like the having and, and you know bathhouse included in all of this is just having these types of texts be accessible to people like you said you know and i wholeheartedly agree like i would have loved to have access to these the option of these as a young teenager just like being able to consume bathhouse in two days this crazy story about these crazy people <laughs> like it's so fun it's so so fun so so a, a thank you for that Ab absolutely i and, and a big thank you to my publisher for for believing in it i um am pretty vocal and talk all the time about you know representation and, and specifically our genre um, and, you know, it's important also to, to shout out the folks who like, you know, are willing to, to walk the walk and put resources behind it. And cause I, I will say, even though we're close, we're a little bit further behind, um, in crime fiction, when we talk about some of these YA, uh, these fabulous queer YA stories, it's, it's not because the readership's any different. Um, the readership's the same and the readership will consume those stories at the same proportions that they would anywhere else. So it's not the readers that are uh, that are behind by any stretch of the imagination, which I see every day when I get on Instagram or I get on Twitter and see the folks loving the book. It's not them. It's folks that might be speaking on their behalf, um, you know, who have have no um, real reason to or, or credibility in that space. You know, you can't speak on behalf of Costco moms when you're not a Costco mom, um, you know, uh, so that's been great. Listen, thank you so much, PJ. I, this is really fun. It was, it's a fun read. Like I said at the top of the episode, you know, you're going to see it in a lot of hands this summer. Um, thank you for coming on Weird Era and talking to us today. I hope you also had fun. I, it was so much fun. It was such a pleasure meeting you. Um, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you uh, for having me on Weird Era. And thank you to, to St. Henry. I, um, I had a blast and I hope uh, we get to do it again um, at, some, at some time. And uh, when I get out to Montreal, I'll be uh, uh, saying hello. 
please do. You got you got some stock to sign over here. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was an absolute uh, Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.